0: Hello and welcome to Life Sentences, I'm Caroline Baum. Okay, I will admit my heart did not skip a beat when I got the new biography of Tanya Plibersek. I was not expecting to find it especially engrossing. Well, I was wrong, partly because of a clever choice of lens that veteran investigative journalist Margaret Simons uses to frame Tanya's temperament, and partly because her story illustrates a different approach to ambition that defies the clichés. Her parents' migrant background, her husband's criminal conviction and subsequent rise to a very senior role in the public service, well, it turns out the material was far richer than I expected. I spoke to Margaret Simons via Zoom at her home in Melbourne and began by asking her about her previous experience of writing biography. Now, your biography of businessman Kerry Stokes was unauthorised and I wondered, what does an unauthorised biography allow you to do and what does it limit?
1: Yeah, so in the case of Kerry Stokes, not only was it unauthorised and he obviously declined to be interviewed, but he also actively told people not to speak to me and that made the job very difficult. Now, he wasn't entirely successful. Some people did talk to me but it really imposed an enormous extra burden of work. You know, you have to absolutely milk the documentary record for everything it can yield. And, you know, I actually think for subjects who prefer not to have a biography written, there is a risk to that. The fact is that the journalist or the biographer is going to work a lot harder at accessing sources of information that you're not in control of. But anyway, that was a calculation that Kerry made. He also, of course... Organised the commissioning of an authorised biography in an attempt to compete with the one I was writing. So that was, you know, it wasn't just unauthorised, it was also actively opposed. And that certainly made it a very difficult job. That sounds quite
0: intimidating. Did
1: you have any contact with the authorised biographer? Well, I know Andrew Rule quite well. He and I are former colleagues at the age. While we were both working on the project, we didn't contact each other. I think that was a sort of decision of both of us. But we have chatted about the experience since. He, of course, got flown over to the States at the pointy end of the private jet. <laughs> well, I was facing uh, legal threats. So our experience was very different, put it mildly. And what was
0: the result of those legal threats? I mean, was that just sort of empty and hot air uh, and a kind of, you know, shot across the bows to intimidate you or was there more to it than that?
1: Well, obviously my publisher had the manuscript carefully legaled and we didn't face any legal action from it. But Good Weekend magazine, part of the nine newspapers, did publish an extract and in the article about the extract got one fact very slightly wrong it really was the sort of thing that only Kerry Stokes and his lawyers would have noticed And there were legal threats there and a correction had to be published, but there was no actual litigation as a result, which I like to think is because I got it right.
0: And what do you think was the single most important thing that you were able to uncover in your unauthorized biography that obviously would not have got a mention in the authorized version?
1: Yes, well, I think if you contrast my book with Andy Rawls, I don't know if anybody's ever done that, the account of the way in which Stokes treated his first family. He has two children by his first wife who are never spoken about. Everybody knows about Ryan Stokes, who, of course, is now running Stokes' Business Interests and and Channel 7. But there were two other children who were never spoken about, who are actively obscured. And also Stokes' adoptive parents who... He told numerous journalists he'd lost contact with as a teenager, which wasn't true. In fact, he took them to Western Australia with him once he was settled there, and they were very much in his life until their deaths. He looked after them materially, but gave them really no emotional attention. His mother died, you know, wanting to see more of Kerry.
0: I'm wondering, Margaret, do you lose interest in a subject after you've written the book? Because I'm just listening to you talking about Kerry there and I'm thinking about his involvement with the Australian War Museum Mm. and his support of a very contentious so-called war hero through a recent very high-profile case. When you see Kerry Stokes in the headlines, in the news again now, Is he of no interest to you or do you retain a kind of vestigial interest? Do you ever think, I may need to do an updated version of that biography?
1: No, I I do maintain an interest. I mean, it was a a very difficult experience writing that biography, so I can't say I'm sort of champing at the bit to return to it. But, of course, his support for Ben Roberts-Smith, who is facing, well, who has been accused of war crimes and is currently suing nine newspapers, the judgment on that case is expected out. I think virtually any day. Yes, I watch all that closely. And in terms of you know thinking why is Kerry Stokes uh, so particularly committed to Ben Robert Smith, I one of the things that's in my biography is he does have a fascination for war memorabilia. He's a great collector. He's got one of the best private art collections in the country. He's always hired very good curators to help him collect. But the things which he has a personal attachment to have always been historical records and particularly war records. So there is a a particular personal connection there, which, you know, I can only think of as part of the context, at least, for why he has gone out on a limb, really, in supporting Ben Robert Smith.
0: Absolutely. A therapist would have a field day theorising about the, the reasons for that. Let's talk about your biography of Penny Wong because you say right up front in the preface that she didn't want it written. So when someone doesn't want a book written and they do eventually cooperate with you,
1: does that fall into authorised? No, it's not authorised in the sense that Penny Wong did not have control over the book. You know, the judgments in it, the way I treated the material, who I interviewed, what else I accessed, that was all my decision. And, you know, it's, it's my work. I take responsibility for it. The deal I offered Penny Wong, which she eventually accepted, though quite late in the process, was that in return for interviews, I would agree to check quotes with her before publication. So anything I was directly attributing to her which I always think is worth doing because then, of course, the person speaks more freely rather than sort of trying to edit themselves in real time, and also that she would see a proof of the whole book purely to check for factual accuracy. That wasn't a right of veto over any judgments I made, but purely to have the opportunity to correct anything that I'd got factually wrong. And by and large, that worked well. I did end up having, I think, seven interviews with her altogether, and... You know, we got on quite well. She was never delighted with the project, but on a personal level, she was honourable through that process. The changes she made to quotes were really trivial, you know, nothing that went to the heart of it, simply taking the opportunity in a few places to express herself a little better and so on. And then the showing of the proofs, she did try and seek some changes that went a bit beyond factual accuracy. So, you know, we, we had discussions over a couple of areas where I would exercise judgement. In some cases, I made a small change. In others, I stuck to my guns. So it's not authorised, but in return for the cooperation, I guess the subject gets some agency, which I think is in the interests of a better result. Obviously, it's not in anybody's interest if I've made a factual error for that to be published.
0: Now, Tanya Plibersek was cooperative earlier on in the process than Penny Wong was. Could you talk us through that particular process of
1: negotiation? Sure. So before I decided to take the project on, I'd done background research. I'd tried to read as much as I could about her that's been published previously. And it was clear to me that it would be entirely possible to do a biography of her without her cooperation if it came to that. But always, you know, better to have some cooperation, obviously. And very wisely, I think, and being aware of my previous history with Penny Wong, she made it clear she didn't want the biography done. She made it clear she would like me to say that she didn't want the biography done, and I agreed to do that. (laughs) But she also was very cooperative right from the start. So I approached her office, had an initial preliminary meeting. I ended up having eight interviews with her. She also introduced me to her family, her brother and her mother, and, you know, gave me suggestions of other people to talk to, many of which I I took up, not all. And the quotes, the checking of quotes, the, the strange process. Initially I was doing that sort of chapter by chapter as I wrote and initially that was very smooth. Again, you know, any changes she made were really very minor, simply a matter of expression. And then when she saw the proof of the whole thing, which was after she was a minister, she actually... Tried to go back and change stuff that she had previously approved. So that was a sort of very rapid, because at this stage I was very close to my publisher's deadline, very rapid email negotiation process while she was on a plane back from Montreal, I believe, uh, an environment meeting there. And again, you know, there were some things which were simply a matter of sensitivity about expression, other things where I stuck to my guns. So a process of negotiation. But I think the book is definitely a better book for the cooperation. But you do have to be robust enough not to, you know, necessarily feel that you have to give way on everything if you're confident in your judgment.
0: I think it's quite funny that you make it very clear at the beginning of the Tanya book that you were the one that needed persuading to do it. What were your reasons for hesitating when a publisher suggested it to you?
1: Well, first off, I, I have another project which has been on the back burner now for a long while. I'm writing a history of the ABC from uh, the Mark Scott years forward. That's with the same publisher. And twice now, the publisher has said, um, could we put that on the back burner while you do Penny Wong? And then what about Tanya Plibersek? And this is, of course, because those books have sold well, whereas the ABC history, I think, is very important, but probably won't be a big seller. So I was reluctant to again be taken off that project to do another biography. And also now I've done a, a lot of sort of life writing, both co-writing memoirs and biography, I've become more cautious rather than less cautious about taking them on because if you do this, you've really got the person living in your head pretty intensely for at least a couple of years. You know, for two years now, my most of my waking thoughts have been about Tanya Plibersek <laughs> <laughs> and you really have to think carefully before you give somebody that sort of space in your head and in your life. So I've become more cautious about it. And Tanya Plibersek, while obviously I've been aware of her and, you know, regarded her as a, you know, a competent person, she had never particularly sort of grabbed my interest. I have to say Penny Wong had done. I was, you know, very interested in Penny Wong before I took the project on. Not so Tanya. So, it was before I agreed, I did that preliminary research of reading what had already been written about her, and two things drew me to her. One was the story of her parents, who were post-Second World War refugees to Australia, and it, those stories have always moved me, you know, the young men and women who remade their lives, really, in this country. So that interested me. And the other thing was that she is a mad Jane Austen fan, and I am too, too. And particularly she's a fan of Sense and Sensibility and of Eleanor Dashwood in that book. And I don't know I don't know if your listeners will know their Austin well enough, but Eleanor Dashwood represents the sense in the title Sense and Sensibility. And it's so unusual for a politician or somebody in public life to sort of valorise sensibleness. And I thought that was worth digging into a bit. Well, it is the most marvellous, marvellous
0: device that you deploy that you seek to interpret many of Tanya's decisions and motivations and you attribute them to this Jane Austen character, Eleanor Dashwood. So Mm. how are they similar in their sensibleness? Can you sort of expand on
1: that a little bit? Yeah, well, one way of putting it, I suppose, Eleanor Dashwood her, so the sensibility in the title is her sister, Mary Anne, and the two sisters are very close, clearly love each other and are very devoted to each other. But Mary Anne, you know, never has an emotion that is not expressed and just about brings herself and her family to ruination through her inability to self-manage. Tanya aspires to be like Eleanor, but she also has, I think, a dose of Mary Anne in her, um, which has poked out at various stages. And so she is the one who always has an eye on process, on emotional moderation. She has been mostly, not exclusively, but mostly against all the changes in leadership of the Labour Party. She would say, you know, the team is more important than the leader. She would, you know, she had no part in the sort of spectacular failure to self-manage through the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd years. And, of course, she has not destabilised... Albanese's leadership, although I'm sure that she has considered doing so because she would be an alternate leader to him. So, yes, she has, she tries to plough a middle course. And in terms of her policy achievements, which, you know, are considerable, I think it was Hugh White who said to me she approached policy more like a senior public servant than like a politician, with an eye on process and implementation rather than a passionate visionary. She is not, generally speaking, with a couple of areas of exceptions, a visionary. Yes. She's a safe pair of hands. That's right.
0: And I think that that contributes to the sort of perception of her as rather bland, is that you don't get that sort of sense of her, partly because she's a very ordinary, shall we say, orator. You know, she's not Mm. known for making fiery speeches. And in fact, you comment on the monotone of her delivery, But Mm. she's certainly not someone that one thinks of as a sort of passionate advocate for a particular view of a future Australia
1: that we're all meant to be kind of striving towards. That's exactly right. And you used the word bland and, and it was that perception of her as being a bit bland, which was one of the things that caused my hesitation. So, yes, you're quite right. She's not. I mean, there are some exceptions to this, which I'm sure we'll come to, but she is not. The sort of here is my vision, follow me kind of politician, or and that's not the kind of leader she would be. She is a safe pair of hands. When she has been responsible for big policy innovations, initially she was working very closely with Jenny Macklin, who's somebody she's very close to and admires greatly. And Macklin, of course, is a, a you know a social policy powerhouse. And Tanya was her helper and you know a crucial helper. But, you know, the vision came from Macklin, I think. And in the other portfolios that she's had currently, of course, an environment, you know, she's been very much talking about process, mm-hmm. getting the framework right, all those sorts of things, which she does very well. When she was housing minister, she did an enormous amount. There was, of course, there was a huge amount of stimulus spending during the global financial crisis put into housing. And one of the notable things about that is nobody remembers it because nothing went wrong. Whereas <laughs> we all remember the building edu- the education revolution and pink bats and so on because of the problems. Tanya had this enormous amount of money suddenly injected into her portfolio, huge amount of social housing built and no problems. And that is the mark of her competence really, together with, you know, senior bureaucrats in state governments. But she was the conductor of the orchestra in that case and, you know, it was superbly done. But the policy initiatives in housing came from outside of government and she was benefiting really from policy vision from other people who'd been working in the housing sector for a long while.
0: There is a word that you use that has a very Austenish sound to it when you talk about her gift for compromise, I guess, and that is the use of the word accommodations. Can you talk a little (laughs) bit about your use of
1: that word? Sure. So Tanya Plibersek began as really being politically to the left of the Labour Party. She joined the Labour Party initially as a teenager during the Hawke-Keating government and left after only about 18 months because she objected to nuclear mining policy and also land rights policy. Uh, The Labour Party was too far to the right for her in those days. She rejoined later. She went right through university. She was very politically active at university, but not party political active. She was involved in social movements and feminism in particular. But it was her experience of working for the New South Wales government, the Liberal government, which convinced her that change was needed and that the Labour Party was the best instrument of change, despite all the compromises one has to make to be part of a party of government. This is a continuing theme. In her electorate of Sydney... You know, one of the main threats to Labour's hold on Sydney is the Greens. It's not the Liberal Party so much as the Greens. And, of course, the comparable seat in Victoria, Melbourne, is already held by the Greens. And she would attack the Greens as saying, you know, they're they're pure but they don't actually achieve anything, whereas Labour is a party of government. You know, we make compromises but when we do something, we actually do something and we bear the responsibility of being an uh, not an alternative government, the actual government now, but even when in opposition... But, of course, that has resulted in lots of compromises. For example, the party under Mark Latham decided to support the Howard Changes to the Marriage Act, which um, made it clear that marriage was to be only between a man and a woman, something which, thankfully, of course, has now been changed. And and which Penny Wong also supported. Yes. And for Penny, of course, given she is gay, it was, you know, an extraordinarily difficult period, but it was difficult for Tanya as well and for everyone on the left. So I think this is a, you know, a theme really for many left-wing Labour politicians, perhaps right-wing Labour politicians as well, that you make compromises on key issues, on principles really, but in return for that, you stay in the room, you maintain influence and you have the chance to win government and then to do things in government. But, of course, you have to hang on to government. You have to do the continuing exercise of persuading the voters to vote for you. And the balance between, I mean, this is a a theme of the current Labour government, I think, the balance between maintaining that sort of Eleanor Dashwood sensibleness um, in the perception of the voters, being recognised as a safe pair of hands while also achieving Labour objectives getting that balance right is the story of our times, I think. And do you think that there's a key moment or a key
0: policy which tested Tanya more than any other in her Eleanor Dashwood qualities? I'm thinking probably of the policy around refugees, asylum seekers, border protection.
1: Yes, yes. I think, well, she described that to me as the most difficult vote she's ever taken in Parliament to support Labour's policy, which was, of course, to maintain offshore processing and the so-called Pacific solution. Carmel Lawrence, who was somebody that Tanya had worked very closely with, of course resigned mm-hmm. from Cabinet and ended up leaving the Parliamentary Party largely over that same policy. And Tanya, having shared a platform with Carmel and argued the same sorts of things, decided not to resign, to stay in the room, and she would argue that as a result she's been able to get policy modifications. She says the policy they took to the 2016 election was one that she you know, felt struck a, a middle course. But yes, I mean, many, many left-wing Labour voters felt deeply betrayed by that and it continues to be a moral issue at the heart of the country, I think.
0: And, and still one that Labour has not found a different way forward with.
1: It's, yes, and it is, I mean, I discussed this with Penny Wong as well, who, of course, as Foreign Minister, is more directly involved in that and she was Shadow Foreign Minister in opposition. And, you know, Penny says that when she went into Parliament, she had believed that the push factors, that is, the awfulness of the situations that refugees were running from, was overwhelmingly the main factor, and that she had changed her view on that as a result of the sort of information you have, security briefings and so on, that you have when you're in government to believe now that pull factors, that is, the ease or otherwise of entering Australia, is also key. And she said it would be much easier if that wasn't the case. It would be much easier if I could believe otherwise. So what do you do if you want to maintain public support for allowing in refugees through conventional means? You need to be able to convince the population that you're in control of your borders And yet, of course, the awfulness, the the human rights abuses involved in offshore processing are ghastly. So it's, it's not an easy area of policy and certainly not one that I think anybody in politics can feel comfortable with our current solutions. You ask for one area, I would say during the time I was researching and writing, that would be it. It would be fascinating to get another interview with her now to talk about fossil fuels and the various <laughs> approvals that she has given in recent weeks. But I don't have that interview, so I can only speculate. Um,
0: and you're not going to get it anytime time soon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Margaret, was there any point at which this bit of Jane Austen architecture, which you so beautifully impose on the structure of the book became a strain or a stretch. So, For example, if you were thinking about Tanya's leadership ambitions, would leadership and ambition, both of those words actually, sort of jar a little bit against the Austen frame? Did you at any point think, oh God, maybe I'm going to have to abandon this because I can't maintain it?
1: Um, Not really. I mean, I certainly see the tension you're identifying. I mean, Austen, of course, is not usually thought of as a political novelist. I mean, there was a great deal going on in British politics when she was writing and you don't, you don't read much about, you know, the madness of the king or the slave trade or, you know, a heap of other issues from Austen. But, of course, you know, as Tanya would be the first to say, the personal is political. And I think the continuing theme of most of Austen's great works is how to maintain your integrity within the sphere that you are given. Ambition, of course, doesn't quite fit that frame because female ambition in Austen's time was incredibly constrained. One could aspire to behave with integrity, one could aspire to marry well, one could aspire to be a positive influence on one's friends and family, but that was pretty much it. That's right. So, yes, so that is a definite tension. But I think the integrity theme and the emotional self-management theme in the frame of the Australian Labour Party and, and with Tanya's personality, you know, that, I think that served me pretty well, really. And I was kind of thrilled when, um, when I found it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Can you remember when you found it? I mean, did you have a, an aha light bulb kind of moment where you went, oh, my God, I've got it. How does that work in your brain? Yeah, really
1: good question. It's a deeply mysterious process. I think most of writing is a deeply mysterious process. So I don't have a pat answer for you. But as often has happened to me when I've been writing something and you go through this sort of weird obsession really with it. So it's, as I say, most of your waking thoughts are about it for a while or that's how it works for me. But the big breakthroughs like that tend to come for me when I'm actually not consciously working on it. You know, I'll be under the shower, I'll be driving somewhere, I'll be sitting in a cafe supposedly doing something else. Well, in fact,
0: I thought you might say to me that you happened upon those breakthrough moments when you were doing your other great love, which is gardening. Do you find that Mm. gardening and writing are as compatible as, say, a lot of writers find walking gives them their breakthrough moments is, is it similar for you that you have to actually step away from the computer for your brain to do the filtering and the sifting
1: and come up yes. with something fresh? Absolutely, absolutely. So, yes, gardening is very important. I also walk, I have to say. I have a dog, so I walk most days. But I'm usually thinking about the dog <laughs> on the walk. <laughs> Whereas with gardening, I find that there is, you know, like I don't listen to the radio or anything else when I'm gardening. I'm listening to my own thoughts. And, yes, quite often I will find myself rushing in with muddy boots and scrawling something on scrap paper on the dining room table. And I've also written, you know, covered masses of napkins in cafes sometimes. So, yes, those, you know, I've learnt, I mean, it's always scary when you're writing, of course, because you can go through a long sort of dry period when you've done lots of research and you don't have what I call the tune, the tune of the book. And when that arrives, it's often in a great rush Unexpectedly, even inconveniently, but I have learnt to trust that if you sort of prepare the ground, you know, do the hard yakka of your research and, you know, ploughing the field, that you can trust that at some point that magic will arrive. Absolutely, it doesn't arrive. It doesn't arrive without doing the hard work. No, no.
0: You 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 do have to prepare the soil. You do have to prepare the soil. That's right. In gardening terms.
1: Nobody writes a book waiting for inspiration. You have to do all the hard work regardless, but I have learnt to trust that inspiration will come.
0: There is that beautiful quote, I think it's Annie Dillard, who says visions come to prepared spirits.
1: Exactly, yes. It's a scary process, though, because when you're working away and you don't have that, you know, I mean, I'm I'm enough of a professional to know that I could write a dull book, but, um, you know, I've got the trade skills, if you like, to do that. But that little flash of insight which makes you think, yes, that's it, that's the tune, that nearly always comes when I'm not at the computer. Now, you talk about the tune
0: there. I want to ask you about your presence in the Tanya Plibersek book because it seems to me that I get more of a sense of you... In this book than I do in the Penny Wong book. So you tell us mm. when you're stonewalled or you tell us how you personally address a possible issue or your view on how Tanya behaves in certain instances um, or you tell us, for example, that you're sitting in Tanya's kitchen at home talking to her daughter. I'm just wondering how you calibrate
1: your presence in the narrative. Mm. Yes, that's an interesting question. I'm interested that you think I'm more present in the Clevesek book than the Wong. So there's a, a sort of um, slide rule. I try and run over that. I, I always prefer not to be in it. You know, I think it's you know, and I, I while you see bits of me in there, I don't think you actually find out much about me. No. But but one of the things, so you know, it's not um, you know, and when I was thinking about you know violence against women, this is what I thought: it's not that kind of a book. The role that I try to adhere to is, well, something I say to students is that you can't dodge the role of the narrator. Whether you are explicitly in there as the I or not, you are always the narrative intelligence. You have the duty and the responsibility to assemble the facts to guide the reader through them. That's always there, whether or not you're explicit about it. So when do you actually use the I word and talk about things you observed or things you thought, well, my role which I try to adhere to, is you do it only when it illuminates the subject matter. So sometimes it's a it's a narrative technique, basically. So sometimes it is the best way to illuminate the subject matter. And if it is, then I don't think we should be shy about doing it. But it's sort of always about you and never about you. It's always about you because you're the narrator and you can't dodge that. And it's never about you because people don't buy a book about Tanya Plibersek in order to find out about Margaret Simons. <laughs> No, but it's interesting, your take on this, and I completely
0: get what you're saying. But, for example, it seems to me at one point, there are several points, I think, where you do this, you editorialize or you interpret where you may not know. So, for example, at one stage, you say, if she truly believes her 2013 decision regarding the deputy leadership of the party doesn't still rankle with Albanese, then she is entirely alone in that belief. That
1: is you speaking to us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, obviously, implicit in that is I don't think she really does believe that, <laughs> um, but she certainly says it, and it was consistent in saying it. Yeah, you know, her line is, you know, of you know, we have a good working relationship. Of course, that doesn't matter anymore. How silly it would be if it did. Blah blah blah. Well, talk to anybody else, including people close to her, people close to Albanese, other people in the Labor Party. You know, everybody knows it wrangles with him.
0: Well, and you make it clear up front that you were not able, you waited and waited and waited and you were never able to get an interview with Albanese. Did you feel that in some way that absence, that sort of elephant in the room absence, adds a degree of tension to the story that actually enhances it from your point of view? There's always this sense that, well, obviously there's a kind of difficulty in their
1: relationship. Yes. I mean, I knew there was. So, as I say, you don't have to dig very far into the Labour Party to find out that there is that difficulty. I mean, the interesting thing, of course, is that they started being allies and Mm. and very close. And there's a combination of sort of structural factors and, you know, ambition in both of them, which has pulled them apart. You know, I do think the, the Albanese interview is the clearly missing piece in the jigsaw that I've made. So, you know, I say directly why that's there. And interestingly, you know, I had a very good interview with Albanese for the Penny Wong book. You know, he was terrific. They've been friends, of course, for a long while. And, you know, he gave me a heap of insights both on and off the record about Penny Wong, which were extremely helpful. So it wasn't, I don't think, that Albanese... Has a thing about me. <laughs> it was that he didn't want to talk about Tanya, and yes, you know I think that's very telling. His absence in the book is telling, but I still would have rather had that interview. Mm,
0: interesting. Now I have to ask you, what do you think of the similarities between Penny Wong and Tanya Plibersek, and do you d- detect any Jane Austen qualities in Penny Wong, whose biography you call "Passion and Principle," which also sounds to me rather Austenish? Yes,
1: I suppose it is. Um, so, you know, one of the things that irritates me a little bit about assumptions around this is that a lot of people think, oh, they're both left-wing Labour women, therefore they must be great pals working together against the blokes. Now, you know, they're not enemies, but they're not allies and they're not pals. Uh, Penny Wong is, has been a long-term ally and supporter of Albanese and Tanya hasn't been in recent years. And indeed has been a leadership rival to Albanese. So even though they're both in the left wing of the Labour Party, you know, they're not particularly allied. They work together, okay. I'm not suggesting they're enemies or there's any personal animosity there. But they're in different parts of the power structure at the moment. Penny's on the inside. Tanya's at the moment a little bit on the outer Having said that, I think it's a very functional cabinet. I'm not suggesting Labour is, you know, more Eleanor Dashwood than Marianne these days. They have learnt to manage themselves and to work together despite what the personal stuff is, so far at least. Let's hope that that continues. But, you know, they're very different. Their personal histories are very different. As I said, Tanya, the child of refugees, who, while they had achieved some financial security by the time she was born, they arrived here with nothing. Penny's parents are also unusual, but her mother, both her mother and her father, had financial security during her entire lifetime. And, of course, on her father's side, she is Chinese-Malaysian, and there's a legacy of trauma from the Second World War there as well. That, I guess they'd have that in common. So, you know, it's interesting, really. They're both women. They're both in the left wing of the Labour Party, but they're actually very different. Penny is intellectually, I think, head and shoulders above most people in Parliament. I'm tempted to say everyone in Parliament. I think Penny is one of the brightest people I have ever met. And Tanya, while she's certainly no, you know, she's no dummy, she's a very clever woman. But you don't get that sense of Tanya, of an intellect, which is sort of head and shoulders above everybody around her, which you do get with Penny.
0: And so does that mean, Margaret, that you would think that Penny would be more likely to
1: be a future leader? Well, Penny has made it very clear that she doesn't want to be the leader of the Labour Party. She has been entirely consistent with that right through her career in public as well as in private. She is currently the leader in the Senate of the government, which is a leadership position. She's part of the leadership team. And she is Minister for Foreign Affairs, which is the job she's wanted for a long while and is doing extraordinary things in that job. I've, I've just finished her an updated chapter on Penny Wong for a new edition of that biography, which will be out later this year. So I've been looking at all the things she's doing in foreign affairs. You know, this, this is the extent of Penny's leadership ambition. She's certainly part of the leadership team. She's probably the second most powerful person in the government after Albanese, even though Richard Mulls is deputy. I think Penny would tip him. And that's the extent of it. Whereas Tanya, I think, probably does still have leadership ambitions, but she is not the kind of person who is going to put those above the fortunes of the government. I I don't think she would be the sort of person at any stage who's going to go in and tear Albanese down because of her personal ambition. That's just not who she is. No. But... If Albanese fell under a bus tomorrow, she would be a contender, but there's no sign of that bus.
0: I have been at meetings where audiences have begged her to challenge for the leadership, and she has made it abundantly clear in the past that she is never, ever going to go down that path, that the damage done to the party in the past just makes that absolutely impossible.
1: And she has been consistent with that, going right back to Kim Beasley, who was the leader When um, she came in, she was very loyal to Jenny Macklin, who was deputy to Beasley, but she has a strong personal friendship with Beasley as well. And she thought Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard were wrong to bring Beasley down, despite the huge 2007 election win. She thinks Beasley would have won that election as well, though perhaps not by as big a majority. And she sees the beginning of all the sort of disastrous leadership instability, which spoiled so much of the promise as the last Labour government, she sees it as starting back then. Mm.
0: Mm. Yeah, she comes across in your book as likable, sane, loyal, and I very much like that little exchange with her father when she's a young girl and she's watching television and Whitlam comes on the television, on the news, and she says, he's a good man, daddy. So she's obviously a good judge of character,
1: would you say? she's She's got that sort of, she's attuned to people. Yes, I think she is. She's all the things you've just said, and she is a good judge of character. Her father was, you know, a huge fan of Whitlam. Neither of her parents were party political. They didn't join the Labour Party or whatever, but they were, she thinks they were probably Labour voters and, in particular, her father liked Whitlam. So she was, you know, charming in with her dad there, who was a huge influence on her in some ways. So, yes, I think she's a good judge of character. One thing I would say about her is I don't know that she's particularly good at political strategy, <laughs> which you would have to say as Albanese is great strength. Albanese, I think, is an extraordinarily good strategist. People I spoke to for this book and my own observations of him would say he's always thinking, you know, 15 moves ahead. He has lost hardly any political battles in his long time in the Labour Party, including in the sort of feral atmosphere of the New South Wales Labour Party. The only political, big political battle which he lost, I think, was the leadership contest with Shorten. Mm. And, of course, you know, he has now won that. So, you know, I think people who are watching the progress of the government and issues like the voice referendum and so on should, should bear that in mind. He is an extraordinary strategist. Tanya, perhaps not so much. She was, of course, deputy to Shorten at the 2019 election, which Labour lost. And hindsight is a wonderful thing, of course. Everybody expected them to win. But in retrospect, It wasn't a particularly good campaign. It was a pretty bad campaign in 2019. The policy mix they took to the electorate was very vulnerable to scare campaigns. They didn't adjust for the difference that Scott Morrison replacing Turnbull made. You know, a whole load of mistakes in retrospect, which I suspect Albanese would not have made.
0: Interesting, because I wanted to ask you to what extent you thought that she was a risk taker? Because one of the things that people talked to me about with the downfall of Malcolm Turnbull was how risk averse he was.
1: Yes. Well, I think Turnbull was constrained by the difficulties in his party between the right wing and the left wing, which of course we still see playing out as we speak. So I think Tanya is not risk averse, again, to the extent that you can look at her responsibility for the collection of policies that Labour took to the electorate. In 2019, I mean, quite ambitious taxation reform they were proposing, a lot of big spending promises, particularly on education, which was Tanya's portfolio. They were very vulnerable to the scare campaign, which Morrison effectively mounted. But you wouldn't describe that collection of policies as risk averse, whereas Albanese, of course, chose two or three areas of policy innovation, climate change, childcare, and so on. To take to the more recent election. I don't think Tanya would have done that. I think she would have tried for a more ambitious agenda again. And we will never know <laughs> whether, that, whether that would have worked. Maybe it would have. But, you know, Albanese, won and you know, nothing succeeds like
0: success. Indeed. I want to turn to some of the more sensitive material in the biography, because at the centre of your biography of Tanya is a family tragedy involving her daughter. At what point In the writing of the biography, did you become aware of that element and how did you navigate how you were going to deal with that? Can you talk us through that a little
1: bit? Sure. So this concerns, after the 2019 defeat, Shorten, of course, stepped down as leader and there was to be a leadership contest. Everybody knew that Albanese would be a candidate in that and Tanya was expected to be too. While there were some other names in the mix, such as Chris Bowen and Jim Chalmers, It was basically going to be between Albanese and Pliwasek for the leadership. To everybody's surprise, on the Monday after the election defeat, Tanya said she would not contest. And it was a big shock, including to a lot of people quite close to her. And Albanese ends up becoming leader unopposed. So, of course, one of the first questions I asked her when I met her was, Why? She had spoken about it before, saying it was family responsibilities, but, of course, everybody's got a degree of scepticism about politicians who say they want to spend more time with their family, so I thought there must be more to it than that, particularly since, you know, she ruled herself out very late. Not so much from talking to Tanya, but from talking to people around her, I got the sense that there was something else there, something I wasn't being told. Like I asked, for example, Jenny Macklin, I said to her, you know, do you think it was family responsibilities that caused her to withdraw or was it, as had been put about, that she didn't have the numbers? And Jenny said, I know it's family responsibilities with the sort of emphasis that tells you, hmm, there's something going on here. And I had similar reactions from other people close to Tanya. It was revealed to me off the record um, about probably halfway through that Anna had been a victim of crime and that that was an issue, but I didn't know any of the details. And then I had asked if I could speak to Tanya's two oldest children, and I had no particular agenda in doing that. It was just I was trying to talk to everybody who knew her, and it thought I thought, well, the kids are certainly old enough to make a decision on that. They're not small children anymore, and it was an adult, so they should at least have the opportunity. And when I made that request, you know, the reaction I got from Tanya's staff was, you know one of some alarm, and I thought, what's going on here? But it was clear that they thought I might know more than I did know and that I might be going to do something that they would prefer I didn't. Anyway, long story short, and you'd have to ask them as to why they decided to do this, but eventually it was agreed that Anna would talk to me. The same conditions applied to that interview, that anything that was going to be attributed to her, she would have the right to clear. In fact, I gave her a complete draft of the section of the book that is about her, and there was a process of negotiation about how much detail of what she suffered went into it. But it's, a, it's an interesting ethical issue because, I mean, I know a lot about Tanya that isn't in the book, and I've always been pretty particular about the boundary between private and public lives. You know, there's some things which are nobody's business except Tanya's, and they're not in the book. But this lay on the boundary between the personal and political because Anna's issues were the main reason that Tanya withdrew from that leadership contest. If Anna hadn't been a victim of sexual assault, Mm. Tanya would have contested that leadership and she may not have won. Maybe she didn't have the numbers. Certainly the Albanese camp says she didn't. But if she had won, of course there'd then be the question of, would she have won the 2022 election and would she now be prime minister? Indeed. But this is not the first kind of
0: speed bump or hurdle that she's had to navigate in terms of the personal and the political. And I was wondering whether you could talk a little bit about her husband's part in the story, because Mm. his story is fascinating. And it has such a kind of quality of redemption about it. And they've navigated that story with such a kind of coherent unity and dignity. I think it's really... It's a kind of model of its Mm, kind. So, could you just
1: talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, Michael Coots Trotter, Tanya's husband, is definitely worth the biography, all of his own. There is so much there. And, you know, I had to resist sort of getting sidetracked and writing all about Michael. (laughs) Um, So, Michael Coots Trotter was a drug dealer, both an addict and a dealer but not just a small drug dealer in the way that so many addicts are, but, you know, to quite a a big degree. He he took over the business that his supplier was running and imported a large amount of heroin, was caught and went to jail, served significant jail time for this. But pretty much the minute he was caught, he began to turn his life around. He went to the Salvation Army Rehabilitation Programme, got clean by the time he went to jail because of course the court process took a while he had a job he was not addicted and he was then went on to be pretty much a model prisoner and as a result got out on parole quite early but still it was a serious business i think even people who know this story and it's not a secret it's been written about before don't realize that you know he wasn't just a, a small time dealer in the way addicts tend to be it was a serious offense and as he said himself he deserved to go to jail so when he comes out of jail, he's on parole. He's studying at UTS, which is where he meets Tanya. And on their first date, he tells her all this, tells her this history, tells her he's still on parole. Um, and it says something about her, you know, the Marianne perhaps in her, that not only does she agree to a second date, she falls in love with him that night. <laughs> Extraordinary, really. Yeah. Yeah,
0: you could see her there as a rescuer, possibly, you know, maybe she thinks Mm. she's going to save him from
1: himself. But anyway. Mm. Well, I've got a few bits in the book where I use that word rescuer. I think it is a relevant word for Tanya. And of course, to be a rescuer is a wonderful thing when you're dealing with people who need rescue and can be quite an intrusive thing when you're not. And, um, you know, I think that tension is, is a relevant tension in Tanya's life. But the truth is, Michael was already well engaged in rescuing himself by the time she met him. He went on to get a job with Michael Egan, who was New South Wales treasurer in the Carr government. And at that point, long before Tanya was a public figure, the issue of his past became public. And there was news stories about it. And he chose to deal with that. Head on. He identified himself as the subject of the stories. Initially he wasn't named in the first and talked all about this. Now Tanya wasn't mentioned anywhere in those stories, although they were a couple at that time. Nobody had ever heard of Tanya Plibersek. But that set the pattern for how they've dealt with it. Since then, every time he's got a more senior job, this history has been interred, you know, disinterred again mostly when he became head of the education department. And it was pointed out that with that criminal past, he wouldn't be a lollipop man or a teacher. And yet now he's running the whole department. And of course, now he's the most senior public servant in New South Wales, head of Premier and Cabinet. So it is an extraordinary story, one he's spoken and written about many times very eloquently. He's a beautiful writer and a better orator than his wife, I would say. (laughs) Not hard. Um, (laughs) Um so yes it's an, it's one of the redemption stories of Sin City really
0: It is, and I guess that it means that when she is standing up in Parliament to speak about the Bali Nine and to plead for clemency, she's doing it from a very particular perspective and it's the only time I think that she and Julie Bishop, I think you point out, are in sympathy with each other since there's no love lost there. It's just an extraordinary, (laughs) extraordinary thing to contemplate her talking about the Bali Nine with that. Intensity of feeling that she must have been experiencing exactly,
1: and there are you know many other stories because Michael Kurtz-Trotter has remained in touch with people he knew during his drug addict days. Not all of them have had the same redemptive story as him. You know this is part of the family's life, and you know it says a lot for Tanya and Michael's compassion. You know they're not they're not judgmental people.
0: No, and there's a lovely, there's a beautiful story that you tell, another anecdote about her taking the time to go back to the office late at night when she encounters someone who's in need of shelter. And, Mm. you know, she stops, she finds out what the problem is, and she goes back to work
1: to address it and fix it on the spot. That's right. And there are so many stories like that, both from her electorate work in Sydney, of course, which, you know, many homeless people and and shelters and so on in sydney which is part of her electorate but also you know just in her private life there are so many stories of this kind that you know there's no there's no way one could put them all in and indeed the book would read a bit saccharine but yes (laughs) faced with faced with individual disadvantage or an individual story she acts she always acts she does I I just Mm. have to
0: ask you, Margaret, given that we've been slagging off about her her lack of great oratory skills, I mean, this Mm. is someone who obviously has access to the best media training around. She's got friends in the media like Rebecca Huntley. Why hasn't someone spoken to her and said to her, listen, you just need to put more colour and modulation into your voice because you sound so boring?
1: Mm. Yes, well, I mean, interestingly, I've spoken to you about the process with Tanya when she got to see the proof of the book. And that this, you know, me saying she wasn't a great orator was one of the things she pushed back on. Um, Ah. I I won't tell you the details of that because these exchanges were off the record, but I don't think she recognises it in herself. She is, of course, a very good communicator. If you see her in media, on Q&A, where she's a bit of a favourite, you know, she's got that ability to connect in a media interview or in an addressed media, she's she's brilliant at it, really. You she know, comes across the, as very
0: sincere. When you see her on Q&A, I always think she comes across as extremely authentic. You can always tell when she's kind of frustrated by a question because she blinks. There's a particularly mm. long, slow blink that she does, which is kind of like her going, oh, God. But yes. she does come across yeah.
1: as very sincere. Exactly, and she is. That's real. But yes, the set piece speech and, you know, I listened to a lot of them, you know, I trailed around after her when she was giving some set piece speeches and the speeches are fine. I mean, she can write a a reasonable speech. But yes, the delivery is so flat. So has anybody ever said that to her before? I don't know that they have. I would say from the reaction I got from me saying it, perhaps they haven't. What I do know that some of those friends you've mentioned say to her is that they encourage her to sort of seize an area of policy and make it her own and be the visionary on the hill saying, follow me. And I think it was Rebecca Huntley who I quote in the book saying, does she have the capacity to do that? Absolutely. Is there a reticence about doing it? Absolutely. So, yes, there's that tension there. Again, you could see it in Eleanor and Marianne type terms.
0: Well, absolutely, reticent is another word that I think has kind of Austenish overtones or connotations. I was reading a piece in the conversation this morning about Christine Wallace's book about political biographies, which asked the question about whether political biographies can become an asset, a kind of piece of collateral in mm. a politician's career. When you were writing your book about Penny and your book about tanya
1: did you think about that at all um i mean i think christine's right i'm halfway through reading that book myself i don't i didn't think about it in quite that way i mean obviously i'm writing a biography not only of a living person but of somebody who's in the middle of a political career you know probably with their main achievements still ahead mm. and i was aware that what i wrote would you know could have an impact could have a could affect the trajectory if you like and that's uh, an extra responsibility to to get it right, basically. So, yes, it's, it's more from that point of view than thinking, oh, is this going to be useful to Penny or is this going to be useful to Tanya? Particularly since both of them made it clear they didn't want it done. Having said that, of course, they're both politicians. They might not want it done, but they want to make sure it's as good for them, given it's going to be done. They want to make sure it's as good for them as it can be. And, of course, they factor that in. And even if they don't, as individuals, they employ you know, very professional communications staff who are definitely thinking along those lines and are trying to get the best possible result for them. So, yeah, but, you know, my side of it is more the extra responsibility of knowing that this is going to be an event in the career of a serving politician. With Penny Wong, I mean, the there's been a spike in sales since she became foreign minister, and I'm, you know, I'm sure that that is because it's being purchased by the diplomatic community and by others who will deal with her in that role. And of course, as I said, my publisher has commissioned a a new chapter for a new edition, all because of that. With Tanya Plibersek, I don't have sales figures yet, but obviously there will be ongoing interest in in her current role.
0: I should point out that this interview was recorded before the judgment on Ben Robert Smith was handed down, and also that by the time this interview was edited, Michael coots trotter was no longer head of the New South Wales Department of Premier and Cabinet, and had accepted a role as New South Wales Treasury Secretary. Things move fast when you're writing about current politicians and public figures. In other biography news, American best-selling biographer Kitty Kelly, responsible for unvarnished biographies of Jackie Onassis, Nancy Reagan, Oprah Winfrey, the Queen, the Bush dynasty and Frank Sinatra, to name but a few, has just donated $1 million US to Biographers International Organization at their annual conference. It's a very handsome gift that will be spread over five years and will underwrite the organisation's future to promote and support the craft of biography. So that is something to cheer about. Speaking of donations, this episode of Life Sentences was made with a grant from Create New South Wales, and I would like to acknowledge their generosity. The show is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Pipewolf Media. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to elders and storytellers, past and present. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown.